Good afternoon and welcome to the Sitka Nature Show. This is your host, Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here in the first weekend of January 2022 with the rollover to a new month and a new year. It's always fun to look back a little bit. And with the wet weather of the last couple of days, I thought it was interesting what happened with the rain. We had an overall relatively dry and certainly cool December this year, well below our long-term average here in Sitka of 8.4 inches. New Year's Eve saw us get an inch of precipitation, bringing us up to only four and a half inches for the month. The year total ended up at 86 inches, just above the long-term average of 84 inches and well below last year's 94 inches. Love to hear what you're seeing out there and observing. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. You can find archives of past shows at sitkanature.org slash raven. The conversation I have for this week's show is one I recorded with regular guests, Brooke Schaefer and Paul Norwood. We'll go ahead and join the conversation with Brooke, reflecting a little bit on looking back at 2021. Well, first, I just want to say thanks for inviting us. Um, when you asked us to come on, I think we had a reaction that maybe we often have, maybe other folks do too, where we're kind of like, I don't really know if we have, if we did anything this year, what we're going to possibly talk about. But we said yes anyway, and then... Then to get ready, we just went back and looked through our last year of photographs and online naturalist. And so it was a really nice way for us to see like, oh, we got, we did a lot of things, even though it felt like we didn't. Um, we got out and we went to some new places and snorkeled some new places and certainly saw some new species. So thank you for being the driving force for getting us to sort of reflect back on 2021, um, what we did out in the natural world. It ended up being fun to see all that we did. Um, so yeah, I guess I feel like the really big news for the year is more from Paul's end because he has had a couple of mountains, one mountain in particular that he's always wanted to, to go to the top of. And this was the year, 2021 was the year that he made it to the top of that mountain. So I know you asked me to start, but I'm kind of going to hand it over to Paul, if that's okay with you, Matt. Oh, sure. Yeah. This year for the first time I went up 5390. That's one of our iconic local mountains. In fact, I would even say perhaps our number one iconic biggest mountain, although it is visible from the bridge and so on, but it's not like the sisters. It's not like Arrowhead, Bear Mountain. It's farther back, but it is the tallest mountain on the island. So that makes it extra cool. And it's a little bit hard to get to. Yeah, it's... um. Uh, for for a little bit of trivia, it's the highest non-volcanic island mountain in the United States. Oh, cool. <laughs> you, I didn't you know got, that. You have to have every one of those qualifiers. There are higher, higher volcanic islands, and there are definitely higher islands in Canada um, that have higher points. But if you limit yourself to the United States and non-volcanic islands, then 5390 is the highest point. So, uh, and, and definitely one that takes a little getting... Did you go up Green Lake, uh, the the route from Green Lake, or or like up Cross Mountain and, and from that way? I've heard of people going both ways. Yeah, I made an attempt years ago from the Cross Mountain side and got really, really close, but it was incredible fog and very cold and snowy. So um, I remember the approach being really long. So this time I went up Green Lake and... It takes more to get up Green Lake simply because you have to have a boat and a skiff and wheels to get the skiff up to the lake and so on and so forth. But it's much easier, much, much easier, much more direct. 
you're right there close um yeah there's no worrying about little cliffs and so on so uh highly recommended route at least on my end how is it in terms of difficulty i mean technical wise did were did it require uh ropes or anything like that we timed it fairly well and there was still quite a bit of snow when we went even though it was uh i think june or something but when there is enough snow that the glaciers are covered and there's not much glacier but when there's enough snow that it smooths everything out you don't need any ropes or anything it's nice to bring crampons and we did and we used them quite a bit but otherwise it's just walking you don't have to use your hands hmm. i re- i remember seeing pictures from i believe people went up that way and there was this kind of high alpine valley look fairly barren. I mean, the pictures were from October, so it was, it was not, uh, you could tell it wasn't shrubs and stuff at least. Uh, and looked like it had been glacial carved, like there's some moraine stuff and, and that, and I don't know, is that, uh, what, what was the terrain like getting up that way where there's some interesting kind of uh, spots that might be, have some interesting things to kind of explore just different little habitats along the way, or, or did you see anything like that? Well, I was a little bit disappointed in some ways because I um, I don't know. Um, there's nothing to do but theorizing when you're going around and looking at things. But I have this theory that anywhere that goats can get to, uh, the diversity is not that great as far as alpine plants. And um, there is the way that we picked, we picked it because it was not very steep. It was not very challenging. And so... Um, it's a way that's kind of maybe heavily browsed and uh, everything seemed to be pretty as expected. Uh, There were a lot of chocolate chip lichens, um, but other than that, I can't think of any thing that really stood out to me as far as being very unusual. Um, It was more things that would be kind of rare around Sitka that were kind of common there, but there wasn't like a incredible trove of wild dandelions or an incredible trove of uh, alpine flowers that I've never seen before. I don't think I saw any new species as far as anything shocking, but I'm sure if one were to go up there, but also explore more laterally, like in the steep crumbly faces or in um, some maybe use ropes, um, to access some points, then that might be nice. And yeah, there was one long valley that we crossed, but it was all snowed in. And so we couldn't see what was under that. Yeah. I, I, if you were there in June, we had a kind of a, if I'm remembering correctly, we had a fair amount of snow late in the winter and early in the spring, a pie. And then it was a relatively cool summer. There was still snow not all the snow melted, not all of last year's winter's snow melted on Bear Mountain or Cross Mountain, unlike the year before, <laughs> or the years before when when we were running a significant snow deficit. So I imagine there is still quite a bit of snow up there. And it might be interesting to check out like that valley you were mentioning, say later in the summer, August or something like that, when uh, that snow would have had a chance to melt and perhaps there's some interesting I mean, even if they're things that I've seen before, it's always interesting to see them in a little bit of a different context for me. Uh, I've not been back up there at all. Um, 
But uh, Brooke mentioned that there was two mountains you climbed. Uh, what was the other one that you got to get up that you'd been been wanting to do? So a friend of mine was going up uh, Clarence Kramer and um, hadn't been up there. Neither had I. So uh, we both went up. And um, safety in numbers and safety in technology, we brought Roland Worth's awesome maps and did get to the top. It's recommended to grab the map if you haven't been there before. And um, that was an interesting one also, but in a very different way. It's a little bit more difficult to access, I would say, than the Green Lake route to 5390. It's obviously not as tall. One of the issues with it is when you get up there, you're immediately sort of boxed in. There's not like going up 5390. You can go for long hikes and start dreaming about, well, I could get to the back of Baranoff Lake from here. I could go to Purehelm or wherever. That's not an option so much on Bassey, unless uh, you were to bring pretty serious equipment, were committed to being on rope, and then you could come down the backside of Bassey and then cross Blue Lake that way if you wanted to carry a pack raft. But that would, all those things would be fairly extreme. And it's not really connected to anything else, as far as I could tell, that was really cool. I mean, there's 4,900 over on the other side, but that's a long ways back and that's its own expedition. So once you get there, um, same thing, there's goats that browse and then there's some steep areas that have some really interesting plants and uh, same pattern that I noticed where everything is boring, everything is boring. Well, everything is just kind of predictable alpine plants. And then I get to a spot where I think I really shouldn't be here. I think I'm going to slide off and die. And then, wow, this is really cool. All of a sudden, there's just really interesting alpine plants that are growing in every crevice. Hmm. So uh, I'm getting the impression that Clarence Kramer was actually more challenging from an exposure steepness perspective than, than 5390 was. The access is just a little bit more difficult. Uh, you don't have to worry about ice at all. And um, the only reason that we did a little bit more exposure is because we were out hunting. And so we had to access points that we wouldn't if we were just summiting and coming back. Oh, oh I see. And so this what would have been then in August? That's right. Early August. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting to think about the mountain mountainscapes. Did you, was it also this year that you went back to the, the sisters, um, like the, the right sister? That's right. Yeah. Uh, same year, same, um, person that I went back to 5390 with, we accessed the sisters, the back sister, also known as South sister, also known as East sister or far sister. So the one that's far away and big, that's the one that we accessed from kind of an unusual route that I usually tell people not to try. And it's uh, starting in Don't Panic. So Don't Panic Trail is the trail that starts um, on the Heart Lake side. So if you're going to Heart Lake from Blue Lake Road, and instead of going to Heart Lake, you stay in the creek and go straight up and use the ridge to the left of the creek, that's probably the easiest alpine access in Sitka other than after they build the Catlian Bay Road, there's going to be easier access. And then from there, it's a little bit of a scramble to get to the summit of Arrowhead, or you can go back towards the sisters. And there's a bit of a scramble section there. I almost thought about leaving a rope there one day. Uh, maybe I could make that 
one of my to-do things. Mm, nice. Well, it is uh, a lot of mountains to, to get up. Are there, are there, are these ones you want to revisit or are there other mountains that you're sort of looking forward to, to climbing in the future or looking at the potential of climbing in the future? There are certainly always more mountains and uh, for sure the Green Lake route to, I think they call it the Chainsaw Trail from Green Lake to 5390 is something to do again. And it's not very challenging. As long as it's not too windy on Green Lake, it's not too bad to get back. Just kind of a logistical hassle getting out there. And then there's a bunch of ridges up above Nakwasina Sound. Some of them get hunted a lot, which is fine. Uh, so they have trails. And then some of them, I think, are not accessed very frequently. So that's kind of perhaps a next area to explore and see what's up there. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see when they get the Catlian Bay Road in and that opens up Catlian Valley um, and then mountains accessible from there and lakes. I, I don't know if it would be possible to hike into, I think it's Goat Lake that's back there in, in one of them and uh, Cold Storage Lake. I don't know if those would be places that would be possible to access um, more easily. I mean, like even now you could take a boat over, but again, the logistics are a little more complicated that way. And on the Green Lake uh, Chainsaw Trail you mentioned there, how long does it take to get to the Alpine from once you start hiking? You know, I don't really remember because I don't remember what time we left, but I think we left maybe around noon and camped uh, in the Alpine. Um, much of that time was taken up by getting, you know, the boat to the back of Silver Bay and, anchoring and then getting the kayaks up to Green Lake and then kayaking across and then stashing the kayaks and then repacking everything. So yeah, that's uh, the, so the hike itself were, is not bad. So Clarence Kramer and this one were both multi overnights. That's right. Yeah. Interesting. So yeah, it's, it's fun to I have a map of Baranoff Island on my wall and I like to look at it and think, Oh, those places look interesting. I, there's most of them I'll probably never get to, but but some of them maybe, uh, and so it is. It is fun to to imagine and and the chainsaw trail there and the, and that kind of that upper valley that you crossed in the snow is one I've been curious about for a few years now. So maybe maybe we'll be able to to get out there and and get up and and look around and um and so Brooke, did you get out in on any any adventures? I mean, it sounds like not these mountain mountain adventures, but um, are those the sort of things that you're interested in, or are you? Or they seem a little more technical and exposed than than you'd prefer to do. Um, well, I talked to Paul about them when he came back from both of them, and he seemed to say, which I think he made clear today too, um, that Clarence Kramer is not one that has a lot of exposure unless you're having to follow a, a goat that you've just killed. Um, and so that one, the way Paul spoke about it, sounded like one that I'd like to do. Um, 5390, I hearing you talk about it just now, Paul, it sounded like maybe it wasn't that maybe it was something that I might want to try. But I, if I recall, you might've mentioned in the past when we weren't recording, um, talking about it, that there's maybe one or two areas where it's a bit of a, a scramble that for might be a bit of a challenge for folks that don't love heights or don't have a lot of technical skill. Am I remembering that correctly, Paul? Well, I mean, with time, 
people's memories always change. I don't remember really scrambling. Um, I definitely used my ice axe and my crampons, um, but you've done that lots of times, so. Well, we'll see. I mean, I certainly love the thought of, I like being up um, in those ridges. I don't necessarily uh, have to go to a summit, so I'm real happy just getting out and hiking. And so um, it might be something that could could go out for a, a partial hike for, and I won't necessarily get to the summit of the, that mountain, but Clarence Kramer, I'd really like to do. Um, and one mountain that we did together, we didn't summit this one either, just because of our time was uh, Mount Dulf up in West Chichagoff. And that ended up being really more about exploring the old Chichagoff mine site, uh, town site. And I think that's why we didn't have as much time to get to the top. But we did, we did hike up a bit of a old landslide up there and, and make our way up the mountain a little bit. Um, so that was kind of an adventure that we got out on together. Um, but the really fun part of it besides just going up a new mountain was really exploring that um, town site, Chichagoff uh, town site, which I think you're familiar with as well, Matt. You've spent some time there. I've not been to the actual town site. I've been in a couple of different places on in West Chichagoff area, but not the town site itself. Well, it was pretty cool. There's like, uh, you can see old, um, oh gosh, what is it called? Oh, uh, the, the tailings piles from from when they did mining up there you can see the old equipment that they used um you can see core samples that they took you can see old you know remnants of corduroy roads and pathways between um buildings and houses you can see old houses up there um so it was really fun to just poke around and see this town just utterly abandoned and see what happens, what's left when that happens. There were even old um, gardening plants, you know, like uh, Foxglove were doing quite well up there. It looked like there was some gardening that had happened at one point and, and those plants were still, were still um, thriving after people left. So uh, that was a really fun adventure. And we saw some interesting species, things that I had never seen before. We, um, oh boy, am I going to remember how to say this one? A bladder rack? No. Jump in, anyone, if they know what I'm talking about. Um, a bladder wort we saw. Yeah, bladder wort. Um, and also a yellow warbler all in that area. And those were both new things for me. So that was pretty fun as well. Nice. And the bladder wort's uh, an aquatic uh, plant. And it had these, an aquatic plant that we found in a muskeg pond, and it has like these little bladders, those little tiny, you know, smaller than half of your pinky fingernail. Um, They look like little bladders that are inflated, um, that are attached to a part of the plant, which was cool to see. I hadn't observed that before. Yeah, I, the first time I ever uh, saw any of those was actually up there as well. I've since seen them, there's some in Thimbleberry Lake. there's a couple, at least a couple of different species, maybe three or four that are occur in the, in the region. And I've seen a couple of different species. Um, I think those little bladders, I think they actually are use them to catch insects, but I, I wouldn't swear to that. But my, my memory is that they are a bit of an insectivorous plant as well uh, to join, join some of our other ones, but it is, it is interesting to get out. Of, I mean, it's not, in some ways it feels like it's a long ways away, but 
in terms of what most people consider their radius of exploration in many parts of the world, it's not really that far away. You're talking about maybe 50 or 60 miles from, from town, I suppose. Right. But then there's this open uh, coast that we have to get by, get, get up <laughs> a little different. Yeah. There is that. It, it, it does make a difference. Uh, so yeah, that sounds like a fun trip. And I know that, um, well, you and I were able to be on one trip together that uh, with some other folks to get out offshore and and get to the continental shelf. And yeah, I'd be interested to hear your reflections on on that experience. That was another amazing thing. And talk about like what you were just referencing, like relatively close by, and yet a pretty big challenge to get out there. Not something that you can just do at the drop of a hat. Um, and then. You know, it feels like very far away. Once you get out to that continental shelf, it, it feels like you're not just, you know, a f- some miles away. It feels like you're a world away, um, which was really cool. And we got to see birds that were new for me, the um, albatross and the fulmers. And I actually really enjoyed seeing a, um, a salmon shark. Uh, which I know is very common and probably lots of people have seen that, but it was my first time ever seeing a salmon shark or seeing a shark. And um, I think also I was able to uh, spot a horned puffin out there. I think we all saw the horned puffin, Um, but there were also, um, let's see, petrels out there and phalaropes. What, what were you most excited about, Matt? Um. Yeah, I mean, it was it was nice to just get out and and see the things. The it was it was fun to the the albatross and the way that they flew in and sort of water skied and then their wings fold up in this weird way and and all of those the kind of things about the albatross were were pretty interesting to observe. Uh, I was surprised, like like you, it's like the sharks. People see them, but what surprised me it was we we're just going along at the surface. And, and see, they're just there, like at the surface, they weren't, we weren't doing anything at the time to, that might attract them. And we certainly weren't fishing. And so that just makes me wonder, like, is that normal or, or did we just get like supremely lucky or are there just a lot of sharks out here just right at the surface <laughs> that, that you could see if you were hanging out here? And, and, you know, one of those things that folks that spend time out there could probably answer that question, but it was interesting to me. And it was it was far out there and accentuated by the fact that it was foggy uh, in the sound. So we actually, for a lot of the time, couldn't see any land at all. And it was very disorienting. I thought we were headed due west. We were actually headed southwest from Lazaria, basically. Uh, and we ended up about 20 miles due east or due west, I mean, of um, Bjorka. So we'd gone quite a ways south. Uh, and so my sense of direction, when I looked at the track that I had uh, recorded, I was like, oh, this must be like my, my first impression was at uh, first instinct was that must have been there must have been something messed up with my GPS. <laughs> and then I was like, nope, <laughs> that means my brain was wrong. <laughs> that was my uh, exact same experience that I remember you showing me where we went. And I had the exact same feeling that we had just pretty much headed out due west that the that we had cruise off to behind us kind of thing. But it was Bjorka. Yeah, well, well, Kruzov was behind us because it was because we were headed southwest. Bjorka would have been actually we couldn't see it, but it would have been off to the off to the left at, at an angle, off to the port side as we were as we were looking. But yeah, right. it was, I had no it sense was, of uh, how 
south yeah. we went, right? That we'd right. be even exactly. near Bjorka. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and to be fair, we weren't really near Bjorka either. It was just just at that latitude. Um so that was kind of a an interesting experience to have out there with that and and then the the killer whales we saw that I mean, I remember sort of seeing killer whales in the distance and we kind of went that way but they disappeared and and I mean they they it was hard to tell how far away things were. I mean, they could have been a half mile away pretty easily or or further for all I know. And then they and then there was some just shortly after that came right up under the boat and I think if I remember correctly you told me that you had a a killer whale researcher comment on your or maybe send you an email based on the observations you put on iNaturalist. Yes, absolutely. Um wanted to know, you know, where we were exactly, uh, what we were doing out there and any sort of information about the about what we saw, about what they were doing and how many of them there were and any other photos that uh might have had of them. Uh cuz he was a researcher um yeah, I'm trying to remember where he does his work, but um, it's not it's escaping my mind right now. But a researcher of killer whales, uh, I think, worked for a university and uh, keeps track of sort of the transient population, if I remember correctly, and wanted to see if he could ID these and know more about them. And he was able to ID, I think, two um, from the photos that I sent, I think I sent a photo of of two of them together, and he was able to ID them both, which was really cool. Oh, nice! And so, were they transient ones, or or they residents, were transient. Or, or offshore? I guess is the other kind that we have. Well, offshore sounds the most accurate uh, for how he might have referred to them. Um, I wish I could. Ha- I wish I had. I was trying to look at iNaturalist really quickly and and pull up his initial email, but I don't see it uh, right away. Um, but actually, here here it is. Let's see here. He uh, replied to me. So I took a, a photograph, um, and he was able to identify a female sub-adult and uh, give a name to it, uh, UAT006, and, it's an, and then along with an unidentified transient killer whale. And they only have one record of it um, in 2015 off the southern edge of Baranoff. So, oh, wow. Um, yeah, I think it was helpful information for them, really added to their um, their research. And he was from University of British Columbia. Nice. Well, that's always fun when you get a chance to, I mean, so you, speaking of iNaturalists, you know, get a chance to connect in with some other folks. I know that Paul and I had a chance to, um, I think Paul, it must have been you that posted the Hydra to begin with, which was kind of, I'd heard about hydras before, but never seen them. And then happened to pick up a, a little collection of something else. And when I was looking at it, I was like, oh, there's a ton of hydras in here. And I think you'd found them elsewhere. And I ultimately ended up getting an email from somebody uh, that, I, that I think you had corresponded with first that was studying, or maybe their graduate student is studying hydras. And so that was a, that was a, a fun little a fun little thing. But I know you've been doing a lot of freshwater sampling this year and posting things on iNaturalist. Any, any kind of highlights uh, that you'd like to speak to there? I guess that, yeah. The, so the hydra are interesting because we don't really think of them. They're freshwater medusae. They're like little sea anemones that live in freshwater. And these people were really interested in getting some specimens uh, for done in California. Unfortunately, my specimens died in transit. So I don't know. There might have been like a heat wave or something 
so they were not able to get good um, information off of them. And we'll have to try again next year. But for the freshwater thing, I was kind of struck when I was looking with Brooke because I always think same thing. Oh, I didn't do anything this year because I had all these other things going on, travel and so on and so forth, work. But then I saw that I was just starting to do freshwater microscopic stuff. And by microscopic, I mean, I'd been using my microscopes a lot to look at something more closely that I had already seen, say a fungus or a moss or something. But I started really just purposefully looking for things too small to be seen by with the naked eye and then looking at them under the microscope and uh, kind of started that about a year ago. And I feel like even though I'm nowhere near an expert or anything, I've really discovered a lot of different things in water that are interesting to me and uh, acquired, of course, expensive, rare references from Europe because I like books and um, had a lot of fun in the process, uh, hydras being one of it. You also found a cool freshwater bryozoan and... Um, it turned out it was really hard to identify, but thankfully you forgot it on your porch for a while or maybe purposefully left it on your porch for a while. And then it made these little um, blastocysts um, that are used for reproduction, but also for surviving the winter. And that's how you identify them. So um, fortunately, uh, sometimes it's good to hold on to something and it just turns into something else that's more interesting or useful. <laughs> yeah, that that was a. I was actually looking. For, that was the same collection where I discovered all the hydras, and I had been looking for a, a sponge. That was a place where there's a freshwater sponge, which I decided. And as I was looking at the sponge, and this is actually it's just the outflow of Heart Lake. I was looking at the sponge, and I noticed these other kind of whitish, pale things. And when I got close up pictures of them, I saw that they had. They're actually really cool looking little sort of tree-like frond frondy things sticking up. And I had no idea what it was. Never even crossed my mind that it would be a bryozoan. I, I only know of bryozoans as marine organisms, which I think they mostly are. But this species, I, I can't remember. Maybe you suggested, I think I sent you an email and, uh, or a message with the photo. And, and maybe you suggested looking at bryozoans. And, and I, I found one that seemed plausible. And so I, I gave it that name. Uh, and then, yeah, it was nice to get it confirmed with the with the blastocyst thing that showed up. Because actually, I didn't know what those were either. I, I went back to that collection because the hydras had been in it. And and then I found these little floating, they're little floating circles, uh, kind of a dark center, and then a pale ring around the outside, and then little hairs sticking off of that. And I was like, what are these little things? They weren't here before. And I thought maybe there was some sort of fungus or mold or something that had gotten on the surface. And and then when I showed those to you, you're like, no, those are the things we need to identify your brazoan. So all the lives of these creatures that I had no idea were <laughs> were even a thing before and start to learn about some of the details of their life history is one of the one of the interesting parts of, of doing these projects. And I know um so I think before you'd done some marine plankton toes, because I remember doing some of those with you and kind of looking at marine plankton, but this year I, I know you're you've focused a lot on on the um, they're called desmids I guess generally zygnep or something like that and and 
I've been watching the observations come in of these. These have a lot of symmetry. They remind me of little kind of green snowflakes of various sorts in, in various ways. And um, there seems to be quite a diversity of them because in one season, essentially, you seem to, I mean, you have 73 taxa already in observations in iNaturalist just from one one season of, of looking at these. So I'd be interested in hearing a little more about those. Yeah, they're truly incredible. And so these little single-celled organisms, um, I I know we've talked about them before, but I'm very excited about them. And um, they have a few things that are really neat about them. And one of them that's really neat is that they have low levels of endemism. Uh, they're not... So generally, the desmids you find here are going to be more or less the same desmids that are found in Norway, Iceland, in... Ireland and East Coast and so on. And that may make them sound boring, but it makes them very useful in many ways. Uh, one of the ways is they can be identified because nobody's ever looked for desmids here. So if, uh, if they were highly diverse and very localized, then we wouldn't be able to put names on them because they would be undescribed species. And then there's a good diversity of them, but not an overwhelming diversity of them. There's thoughts that there might be about 9,000 or so desmids in the world, which is about the same as there are birds in the world. And that also makes them pretty handy for uh, comparing different um, water quality projects and so on. And also they're kind of, uh, they're just pretty and they're, they have lots to look at uh, that they're not little blobs, I would say. So um, I had a lot of fun with desmids and the season is short because they take a long time to develop. They're not like, they don't tend to bloom fast. So they don't do well in places where there's big blooms and lots of energy happening. They do well in nutrient poor areas. And by the time there's a lot of desmids, it's kind of end of the summer already. I didn't start desmids until September pretty much and already got over 70 species. So it's a, a lot of work, but it's rewarding work, and there's you don't need to travel far to find them. So lots of reasons to love those little things. So you're pretty much finding them in all the little freshwater pools and muskegs and and lakes and margins and those sorts of things. That's right. And over in the Netherlands, where there's a lot of desmid fanatics, uh, one of the things that they like to do is they like to find those bladder warts that Brooke and you were talking about. And the best one is the big bladder warts, the common bladder warts. So the one that we saw up in um, Chichigoff was Utricularia minor, the smaller bladder wart. There's an intermediate one. And then there's the common bladder wart. It's for some reason, desmids are all over them. And so you can squeeze them into a little uh, vial. And that's probably the number one best place to find them. But otherwise, lots of different nutrient-poor areas, like, yeah, musket ponds, places that don't dry out too much in general. And uh, I don't know if they're, like, caught by the carnivorous... I think they're called clostériums, the little traps of the bladder wort. Um, I tried to look and see if they were in there, but when I look inside those um, little sacks of the bladder wort, mostly what I see is diatoms and things like that. Sometimes I also see some um, crustaceans in there, but I don't know if some of them are in there by choice or not. Hmm. 
Yeah, that would be interesting to know. And the common bladderboard is the one that we found in Thimbleberry Lake. So I guess that's a place you could go look and see. And that actually reminds me the the hydras that you were mentioning before that we'll have to wait till next year. Uh, the researcher in his last email to me was like, he was surprised that we found them as late as we did. He said, uh, then he was wondering what the water temperature was. And unfortunately, I hadn't measured the water temperature there when we when we found those last ones. But it was definitely, I think it was October, maybe when we were looking for them. So uh, something, some, something that may be of interest as well. Perhaps we have some cold cold temperature adapted hydras here, which would, I guess, make some sense given our location. And Brooke, I know last time when we spoke, you were just, maybe you'd passed 100 species, maybe you were up over 150 species by then, uh, had sort of dabbled maybe in iNaturalist up until, I guess it was, I guess the fall of 2020, if I recall correctly, and then got bitten by the bug a little bit more. And and I've noticed you sort of climbing, climbing the the uh, the rankings, so to speak, or in terms of number of observations and number of species. And it seems that you're, I think you're over 500 species now, if I'm remembering correctly. So I'd, yeah, be interested to hear a little bit more about your um, your experiences using iNaturalist and and as a way to kind of motivate or 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 uh, bring into your explorations that you're already already doing oh man yeah well my i am over 500 i was checking today because um i know your brother jonathan goff is in town and um he is my arch nemesis and i (laughs) um so i had to check and see where i was and i'm at 552 species here in sitka 587 in southeast alaska so I'm hopeful that I can stay ahead of Jonathan, but he is so sneaky. I'm afraid he's just going to pop back in and get some more things. So I've got to, I got to just keep working on it. <laughs> what is my, is my um, tactic at this point? Just keep going and getting a species. Um, but in, in all seriousness, it's just been a lot of fun to do iNaturalist. Uh, uh, this year, I feel like I really enjoyed the experience of, um, you know, I get a lot of things from being around people like you, Matt, and Paul, um, people who are m- far more experienced and skilled at identifying things. And so the things that end up making me feel like the most excited are when I um, choose a species to try and work at really getting comfortable with ID- IDing or when I see something that I can readily ID. Um, so yeah, those feel like little victories for me getting a a pygmy owl felt great this year. Like I loved being able to um, see it first of all, and then just know instantly what it was. And that one was a highlight for me just because um, I love to see owls period. And then being able to ID it right away on my own feels like a little victory. Um, So yeah, I think I'm still at the stage of, yeah, I have, I have so many things that I haven't, I identified. I have a lot of things I can continue to explore, a lot of work to do. And then I simultaneously uh, make an effort to like, just get better at identifying, uh, say, golden eyes versus buffle heads or whatever, just like getting a little more comfortable with some things that are really common around here. Um, so that I feel like, oh, I can ID this on my own. I had a little, it felt like a personal victory when we were just the other other day earlier last week walking through Totem Park and American 
wait, oh boy, now I'm going to say it wrong. Eurasian widgeons were in the uh, river and I instantly knew what they were, recognized them and their distinctive, I think of them as having a distinctive face and head. And so um, I guess iNaturalist is fun for me in having these little silly competitions with people like Jonathan Goff or or just having my own goals of kind of climbing a, a ladder of numbers. But then it's also really wonderful um, for me just at, in getting more uh, familiar with the world around me here in Sitka and Southeast Alaska. So yeah, I've been really enjoying it. And there were some exciting um, things we saw, uh, I guess the, I, I'm uh, kind of flashing back to a whale necropsy that we we had the opportunity to go and see then the barnacles that are on the whale and then the barnacle that's on the barnacle. <laughs> so that was cool. When you, like, what a rare experience to go see, uh, to be at a whale necropsy. And then that means you have a chance to see these species that are um, hard to be able to see, to identify. So that was really fun. I remember somebody teasing Paul about, or maybe Paul actually said this and, and they teased him about it later about a, a dead whale some years ago and all the, all the invertebrate habitat that was, uh, was now gone because the whale had died. <laughs> for the barnacles and the and the whale lice, I think uh, there's whale. We lice. didn't see the whale lice on this particular one. We were looking forward to it, but yeah, I mean, I think probably Paul, were you most excited about trying to go see whale lice, or were you most excited about the whale itself? For sure, the whale lice, hundred <laughs> percent. I mean, those cyamid whale lice. There, if you don't know about them, they're worth checking out. They're a little bit gross, maybe, but they're amazing. Definitely gross. <laughs> and the whale's only one species after all. And how many species is on the whale? That's that's a lot right. more. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of fun. Well, it is. Have you noticed as you've been walking around and just sort of doing your sort of regular walks around on trails or whatever, that there are things that you are noticing and recognizing now that are familiar to you that in ways that they weren't before you started doing iNaturalist? Oh, absolutely. For me, yeah. Uh-huh. A hundred percent. Just, I mean, to be totally honest with you, like one of my first um, kind of goals when I started was just to get really good at like the Sitka spruce versus the hemlock, you know? So like you can see where I'm starting, was starting at. And and now um, that's v- very straightforward for me, the, the yellow cedar and um I'm able to identify uh, more than just the few trees we have around here, but also some bushes and other plants readily and a few birds. So um, it's been really helpful for me as far as actually getting to identify things, getting a little more familiar with, with things. Absolutely. Yeah. It's interesting to consider the way in which people learn things. Some people do it differently. The way that's appealed to me and, sounds like it's something at least that you're incorporating a little bit is, is starting with the things that you recognize and looking for things that are different. And so you know that there's spruces and hemlocks and just getting to know those pretty well. And then maybe something else shows up and you're like, well, that doesn't look quite right. <laughs> what, what, what might that be? And you did a little traveling this year. I think, I think both of you maybe visited a couple other communities in Southeast this fall. And, and I think if I'm remembering correctly, you, you had a chance to go on a cruise this year. Oh, yeah, I did. That's right. Um, yes, very last minute, I went on a pretty 
unexpected fancy cruise um, from Sitka up to Glacier Bay, and um, we and it was my first time ever going to Prince of Wales. Went to Thorn Bay and got to walk around there, explore there a little bit. Went through um, oh man, Icy Strait was just stunning, um, and Ketchikan, um, Misty Fjords. So I saw a lot of. Uh, what's just kind of outside our backyard um, this this over the course of about 12 days. So it was, it was fabulous. It was great. We had um, quite a, an experience. Um, I don't know if you've talked to Simon or if Simon Hook has been on the show recently. Um, he was on the boat that I was on and maybe he spoke about it already, but we saw quite a display of whales just off of Yacobi when we were going up there, I guess that was the end of June when I was on the cruise. And it was the, the numbers of whales. I had never seen that many together before. It was quite something. Nice. Yeah, I, I did talk with Simon earlier in the fall, and he did mention seeing uh, very active and, and large numbers of whales out offshore. And I couldn't quite remember, but I think that was probably the same trip with those whales off of Yacobi out. And then going back again in an, a week or two later and it just being quiet, they'd, they'd moved on and, and gone somewhere else. Just luck, so, timing. Yeah, yeah. So you, you had a nice nice timing with those. And uh, so I, I, remember, I remember you and Paul did a trip from Glacier Bay before on kayaks, which of course is, I'm sure is a very different experience than going on a cruise. But the I am curious, you know, w- with your more recent uh, dive into learning the some of the plants and animals of of the area around Sitka, and and more generally, of course, that means Southeast Alaska. If you were noticing things in a different way on the cruise than when you've previously traveled to some of these locations or, or other locations in Southeast, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, definitely. Um... I mean, that was part of the fun of being on the cruise was to go and see what of the plants or any of the, you know, any species, animals, birds, whatever I could see, what of them, you know, were familiar to me from Sitka and what of them were outside of what I was familiar with. And I was actually looking back through iNaturalist today to in preparation for this and kind of remembered, saw like my, um, I guess, introduction with like, sea sandworts and sea milkwort. And um, I guess I'm still a little fuzzy as to how common they are in Sitka, but uh, maybe you, Paul, or Matt could speak to that. Um, But just seeing them everywhere when I was out on this cruise and being really taken by them, and maybe it was time of year as well, or just for the first time being looking, you know, having my eye on the the um, kind of tidal lands and looking at the plants in a way that I hadn't before. So that, I guess, speaks exactly to what you're bringing up, Matt, is that I, I think it really changed the way I looked at things. Um, and I noticed things that were always there, but I hadn't noticed them before. And I took pictures of them and I tried to like uh, puzzle together, you know, what these things were and what was different about them and what was similar. And um for whatever reason, those sea sandworts and sea milkworts stand out in my mind as like little challenges on the, from that cruise that I I eventually figured out with the help of other folks and with guidebooks. Nice, yeah, they are. Uh, it depends on the beach you're on. Some beaches they're pretty common, and other beaches not so much. And it is interesting how patchy the distribution of things can be, and things that I might take as 
really common might not actually be very common at all other places and vice versa. For example, the red paintbrush, uh, which often grows in beach meadows and, and other places elsewhere in Southeast Alaska. The only time I've, se- I, I've never seen it right close to Sitka. The closest I've seen it is near Lake Eva in Hannes Bay and on the other side of the island. I've seen it up at Yakutat as well, but, um, and then on the mainland by Glacier Bay, but not here for whatever reason. It grows all over Southeast Alaska, it seems like, but for whatever reason, not right around Sitka. <laughs> so, you know, those mysteries are one of the things that I continue to be curious about. Why are things here and not there and vice versa? And yeah, hard to know sometimes. And so as you're looking forward to the coming year, are there any particular groups or puzzles or, or habitats, things that you want to focus some attention on and, and get a little better at? For me, I feel like I'm still so new that I could just choose anything and I've got plenty to discover. So, I mean, I haven't even started looking at insects and I was all gung-ho about liverworts when I first began and then realized how hard that was. So I've put a pause on that. And then um, I just think snorkeling is so much fun and that's such a rich area as well that I have so much to learn about. So you know, really take, I could just choose anything and <laughs> I'd have plenty to explore and learn. Um, but yeah, I guess snorkeling is something that I hope to keep doing. And so maybe that'll be a place that I, I put some attention and I just, birds are so much fun that I, I wouldn't, I always want to have some of my attention there and get a little bit better at that. Nice. Yeah. I guess it's a good time of year for snorkeling from a water clarity perspective, a uh, little less daylight to work with, but in the next couple of months here as the, as the um, daylight comes back a little bit, but the water quality, uh, water clarity remains high. Uh, good time to see what's under the, under the sea. And if you're interested in insects, I might suggest starting with moths. Um, they're relatively easy to observe by just leaving a porch light on and checking the wall each morning and seeing, or if you walk down to Totem Park, just checking the walls on the outside of the building. And uh, many of them are pretty distinctive. And when you get to looking at them, they're actually, some of them are pretty fancy and some of them are pretty drab, you know, as, as, as with many things. But um, most of them, in my experience, are reasonable to recognize or get identified. And so they can be a, a nice sort of entrance into the into the world of insects, which generally speaking, are immensely diverse and <laughs> and can be quite challenging in some groups especially. So And is it sufficient with moths to just get a photo of say the like the moth that's on the wall kind of thing? Like that's kind of you just need to see that pattern of the wings as they're folded together, or do you need to see more of it, <laughs> like the underside or Yeah, well it depends on the most of the ones that I'm talking about and and have photographed you can identify just from a picture of the moth on the wall uh if you're going to get really strict about it there are certainly groups and and species pairs for example that you have to do microscopic dissection of the genitalia to identify the species and and that's more the case in some other groups like flies i think have there's a number of fly groups that are that way as well there's also a number of fly groups that are pretty recognizable identifiable based on just a, a photo of of the the whole fly so 
it, it really kind of depends a little bit. But yeah, the moths uh, are, and, and the the other flies, the flower flies, the sort of bee mimics, um, bumblebees are also another one that that are often identifiable by folks that know. Uh, we don't have a, a high diversity of bumblebees here. It doesn't seem like, but um, but there are. Yeah, lots of sort of the showier ones are often the fun way to start, and then you fall down the rabbit hole and get into all the, <laughs> all the all the little details, or or not, you know, because like you say, there's plenty of other other showy fancy things to look at in the in the waters and 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 all over the place. So uh, it's a long way from running out uh, of things to look at. And Paul, any any particular? Uh, groups uh, maybe continuing with the desmids. Uh, any any other sort of quests for for your iNaturalist related explorations? I mean, I hate to kind of go out there and say for sure. I I don't know. I want to do lots of things, but for example, I wanted to go back to liverworts and mosses this winter, but now they're all encased in ice. So you never know. Um, it'll be a little bit weather dependent. Of course, uh, like you said, the snorkeling is brilliant right now. And that's definitely, this is the time to snorkel. This is a great time to snorkel. If anybody's thinking about it, this is the time. The water's 43 degrees last time we went in. And um, it's going to get colder, unfortunately, but uh, it's really, really pretty. And then uh, it sounds like we, I have a, moth trap so it sounds like we got to go out and trap some moths uh what's the time of the year that's um it really kicks off there are some that overwinter as adults so on rare occasions or you know occasionally i might see one i just leave a porch light on all the time and so i'll go look at the wall especially if we have a warm warm uh like a warm day or two in the middle of winter like we get sometimes the moths that are overwintering as adults will sometimes fly during that time and move around. And so you might, might happen to see one then, but really uh, the season starts more April, May. And then there, there's a kind of a peak in April in terms of diversity. It, usually it's a little, a little less in June and then July and August, it, it picks up again uh, with, with numbers. And so different species fly at different times of the year. And yeah, you can set up a trap or have UV lights or uh, we actually, we didn't do it this past year, but in 2020, my kids and I went up to Harbor Mountain. We have these little uh, UV lights there. I think they're made for like parties and stuff or something, but they just plug into USB. And so I have these batteries that have USB uh, things so we could plug them into these batteries and we just set up a sheet and these lights up on Harbor Mountain Road near the top and, you know, leave them up for a half an hour or something. And we've got some different species than I'd seen before flying in there as well as caddisflies and, and other things. So that's something that the weather wasn't not as cooperative this past summer as it had been the summer before, but uh, it's something I'm looking forward to doing again. And maybe in, maybe as if, if, and when we move out of our sort of COVID times that um, it'd be fun to have a group of people and maybe set up a couple of different stations up there and in the probably July uh, and just see what, see what shows up. Uh, cause they're, and it's been interesting every year. It's been different. Like I've got new species every year that I haven't seen before. And then of course there's the ones that I see every year and in varying abundances. So it's, uh, you know, lots of questions arise to my mind when I'm thinking about those things. And so, yeah, it's, uh, yep. Good, good fun with the moths and maybe I'll have to try and brave the, um, 
brave the, the water. So I do have a wetsuit and, and a snorkel and a, a mask. I guess I, I, I did find that maybe a, a weight belt is helpful, <laughs> which I didn't have. Uh, not so easy to, to get below the surface when you don't have a weight belt. <laughs> I like your um, moth idea. Uh, that sounds fun. Have a little a, a party of folks <laughs> trying to up on Harbor Mountain, trying to ID moths. That sounds great. Well, we'll have to help to keep that in mind for, for the uh, summer season. So, yeah. yeah. Well, any other, any, any, as, as we're kind of uh, wrapping up here, any, any particular places that you're excited to go explore that either re-explore places you've been or, or new places that you'd like to see in the coming year? Maybe we'll start with Brooke. Oh, okay. Let's see. I was wishing you went to Paul because I was like, I know there's some place that I can't think. <laughs> um. Yeah, off the top of my head, there's no like, like uh, definitely going to get to this summer kind of thing. Um, in, in my right, that's I, I don't have anything that I'm already scheming for this particular summer. Um, but I'm hopeful to just get out there and jump at whatever opportunities come, and hopefully we'll have some good weather, and and so maybe can get out for you know overnights or or just good long days get a little further afield that would be that'd be great nice yes and how about you paul um pretty much all the places i mean for sure i want to go to everywhere from Hyder to yakutat at least and uh flower mountain in haynes i know i've been talking about it but it's a thing and uh everywhere around town but honestly having the ability to just go to Thimbleberry or go kayaking around Sitka Sound is just a great thing to be able to do. So, um, yeah, uh, definitely a lot of small local trips too. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, uh, Paul and, and Brooke. And it's always fun to hear, hear what y'all have been doing. I find it inspiring, you know, in the back of my mind since, the first and only time I ever went up Cross Mountain was in 1996, and I've been intending to get back there since. Maybe this will be the year. Nice. <laughs> uh, it's only been 25 years, maybe 25 year anniversary. You can do it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Lots of lots of little places like that, and and looking forward to exploring and also just getting back. You know, Star Gavin Ridge uh, was has still has things to to uh, reveal um, that I haven't noticed before, and and so it was fun to get up there a couple. I guess maybe I only made it up there once this year, but uh, it was fun to explore some of the some of the different ways to get to places, and uh, some of them inspired by trips that you all have done. So thanks for thanks for joining me here. Wow! Thanks so much for having us, Matt. It was great. Thanks. You've been listening to a conversation I recorded this past week with Brooke Schaefer and Paul Norwood. I want to thank them again for taking some time to visit with me and thank you for joining me here on the first Sitka Nature Show of 2022. As always, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. Until next time, this has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCAW Sitka.